All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24? If you're new with us, uh, it's good to see you, but uh, you want to know where we are. We're in Matthew 24. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And Matthew 24 is actually a discourse, a teaching that Jesus gave his disciples in response to a question they asked him at the beginning of this chapter in verse uh, 2. And uh, actually, that was due to something Jesus said at the end of chapter 23. You see, he told them he was going away and they wouldn't see him anymore until they said as a nation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You have to understand, these were Jewish guys uh, that were following Jesus because they believed he was the Messiah. And they were always taught that when Messiah finally came, he was going to lead a revolt against the Roman government, overthrow Roman oppression, establish a glorious kingdom uh, where he would reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth and the Jews would be his prime ministers. But now he's talking about going away. He can't go away. I mean, Lord, you've got to establish the kingdom. How can you go away? And so he drops that bombshell on them, walks across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, sits down, they come to him, and they said, basically, Lord, what are going to be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Now, the age that they were talking about was the age of man's evil and rebellion. It started in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's authority, God's rule, decided to do what they wanted to do, and every one of their descendants after them has been born with sin, a sin nature and a rebellion in, their, in our hearts, and uh, we want to do what we want to do. We don't want God really telling us. We often will say, oh yeah, people say, oh, I, I really want God's will. Really? But they're not living like they want God's will. And when the disciples ask, well, Lord, you're going away. Well, when are you coming back? Because we want you to, to end this evil age of man's rebellion, sin, and and injustice, and immorality, and, and everything else. We want you to establish the, the glorious new kingdom age. When are you coming back to do these things? And that's when the Lord Jesus launched into one of the greatest discourses in the entire Bible. It's called the Olivet Discourse, or the discourse, the teaching, that took place on the Mount of Olives. They want to know what are going to be the signs of your coming in the end of the age. So in verses 4 through 14, he gives them a quick overview of the final seven years that will lead up to his return. He divides that section, or this seven-year period, I should say, into two halves. The first three and a half years, he refers to in verses 4 to 8 as the beginning of sorrows. The second three and a half years, the Lord mentions in verses 9 to 14 and calls them great tribulation. After he sketches out the entire seven years quickly, he then goes back in verses 15 to 28, and he focuses on that last three and a half year period. He wants to amplify that. He wants to give them greater insights into what's coming. Now, they're not going to be there to see. This is a future generation of Jews who will be living at the time of the tribulation period. But he wants to tell the nation what they can expect in this second half of the great tribulation. So he zeroes in on this period of time to talk about what it's going to mean to the Jewish people primarily who will be living at that time. After the Lord gives the signs that will precede his second coming, 
He goes on to say in verses 29 to 31, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, we have studied all of that in the last few weeks. And Jesus closes this section of his discourse with three admonitions built around three illustrations. The first one is a fig tree. The second one is Noah. The third one is a thief in the night. We looked at the fig tree illustration last time. Let's read it and kind of just review. Verse 32, he said, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So he said, when you see all these things, know that it is near. What is near? My coming to end this evil age and begin the new age of the kingdom. But Luke records in his gospel, Jesus said, learn a lesson from the fig tree and all trees and all trees. Some make the fig tree Israel. But no, he's not really using the fig tree as Israel here. He's just giving a simple illustration from nature. Now what the Lord goes on to give was a simple analogy that even children understood. When the fig tree or any tree begins to put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, it's going to be with Jesus' return. The generation that sees the events take place that he has just described in verses 5 through 28, the signs that take place during the tribulation period, that's the, that's the context. He said that generation, that generation will not die without seeing his return to establish his kingdom. And as we've already pointed out, once these things begin to take place, once the Antichrist is revealed, which is going to be the beginning of the tribulation period, he's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel, and that will officially begin the last seven years. The generation that sees the events taking place that he has been describing, and know this, those events are going to happen in rapid fire order. Once they start, nothing is going to stop them from continuing until the kingdom is birth. Jesus returns, the kingdom is born. Just like once a woman goes into labor, nothing is going to stop the birth of that child. That's why he likened this period of time to a woman in labor, this last seven-year period. We've talked about this. Not only as a woman goes into labor, not only are her birth pains in the beginning less intense and more spaced apart until she gets closer to the birth of the child than she does, of course, the pains grow more intense and closer together until just before the child is born, they are at their maximum intensity and coming one after another, and then the child is birthed and she has peace. But here's the thing. The tribulation period, when it begins, the 
the pains of judgment are going to start out less intense and more spaced apart. The closer the world gets to the return of Christ, the more the uh, judgments are going to be ramped up, which means they're going to get more and more intense, more and more cataclysmic, read Revelation, and get more and more you know, frequent until the world is reeling from one cataclysmic judgment after another until finally Jesus returns and the kingdom is birthed and then there's peace. There's peace. And so that's why he likened this period of time to a woman in labor. Now, the fig tree illustration. Now, we've, we looked at that in detail last week. And so that brings us now to the second admonition built around the second illustration he gives about this time. Verses 36 through 41, he talks about the days of Noah. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and the other left. Now, many have interpreted the words of Jesus as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. They have interpreted those words to mean as evil and immoral as it was in Noah's day. So the same kind of evil and immorality will characterize the days just prior to the return of Jesus. And even though that seems to be true, I don't think that was the main point Jesus was making when he said this. I say that because he goes on to tell us in verse 38 what he was talking about. Verse 38, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, there is nothing evil about eating, drinking, marrying, and giving your daughter in marriage. The point that Jesus was making is that the people in Noah's day were going about their lives as usual, right up until the day Noah and his family entered the ark and judgment came. That's what he meant in verse 39 when he said, and they did not know, the people of this world did not know what was coming until Noah and his family entered the ark, and then the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, God's judgment took them by surprise. That's obvious, right? And yet, I think there's one more thing that the Lord was kind of implying or alluding to. Uh, a little nuance that goes along with the idea of being surprised. Some say the point he is emphasizing in these verses was that it was business as usual. No, business as usual. As uh, in people going about their daily routines, when God's judgment fell on them, taking them by surprise. And I believe, of course, that's essentially true. It did catch them by surprise. But Jesus didn't say the people in Noah's day were buying, selling, and conducting business as usual. Instead, he chose to emphasize they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. And I personally don't think the eating and drinking uh, he's referring to here was normal everyday eating and drinking. But rather, the eating and drinking associated with, listen, celebration and merriment as when people attend a party or a wedding feast. In other words, not only 
was Jesus saying that when God's judgment fell on the people of Noah's day, it caught them by surprise. Listen, he is saying it caught them by surprise because they were totally oblivious to the fact that it was coming. They were totally oblivious to the fact judgment was coming. I mean, if people know judgment is coming, but they just don't know when, that, that reality hangs over them like a dark cloud. You can't have fun. You can't throw parties. You can't celebrate. You can't enjoy merriment. You know, if you know the judgment of God's about ready to fall any day, that reality, that truth, is going to keep you from, you know, celebrating. Apparently, the people in Noah's day had no thought in their minds that they were about to be judged until it happened. Now, understand, it wasn't because they hadn't been warned. It wasn't because they hadn't been warned. The Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2, verse 5. It took Noah and his sons 120 years to build that ark every day in their driveway. <laughs> he became the laughingstock. I'm sure tour buses pulled up. Every day, look at the nut job building that big boat. We don't even know what it is for. Rain, what's rain? We have never... He's talking about rain. We know what rain is, you know. Every day as Noah's beating the hammer and building the ark, people are walking up laughing, and he's preaching to them, it seems from Scripture, a message of repentance. Turn your hearts to God before it's too late. Judgment's coming. Not only did they not listen, it was such a non-issue to them that they never gave it a second thought, as evidenced in the fact that they were partying and celebrating when judgment came. Jesus is telling us there is coming a future generation, a future generation that is going to be caught off guard when the judgment of God, the very judgment he's been talking about right here in Matthew 24, and the judgment that John writes about in Revelation 6 through 19, there is coming another judgment. Peter said, God will not judge the world again with a flood. God made a promise to Noah and the entire human race. I will never again destroy the world with a flood. Read the fine print. <laughs> Next time I'll use fire. The point is there's coming a generation that is going to be oblivious to what's coming upon them. A judgment that will affect the entire world just like the people of Noah's day were oblivious to the judgment that came upon the world at that time. And once again, it's not that the people of this world in our day haven't been warned. There are many preachers of righteousness. There's a lot of loons and a lot of nut jobs out there, but there's many good pastors and preachers. There is many preachers of righteousness on TV, radio, the Internet, and in pulpits across America and around the world who are screaming about judgment that's coming, calling people to repentance before it's to get your life right with God. Judgment's coming. How are they received for the most part by the world? They're laughed at, they're mocked, they're ridiculed, and dismisses these warnings as utter nonsense, the ravings of religious bigots and nutjobs. And it's going to be that way up until the church is taken off the earth at the rapture and God's judgment falls upon them and catches them by surprise. Now, speaking of the rapture, let me read the next three verses that Jesus connects with the days of Noah. He said in verse 40, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. 
One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. When most Christians read these verses, they automatically assume they're talking about the rapture, where Christians disappear off the earth and are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And I understand why they would think that. I did for many years myself, until I studied the passage a little deeper in the context. We have to remember the context. That's the key, okay? Matthew 24, as we have pointed out, the context is Israel, not the church. Remember, once again, the church won't be born for another 55 days from this point in Matthew 24. On Pentecost, from this point, the Olivet Discourse to Pentecost is roughly 55 days. That's when the church is going to be born. These men weren't thinking like New Testament Christians. They were thinking like Old Testament Jews, and rightly so. Why would they think any differently? And because of it, they want to know. That's what the question was. You say you're going away. How can you go away? You're supposed to establish the kingdom. Okay, you're the Lord. You can do what you want. But when are you coming back? Because we want this kingdom to get going. We want this evil age of man's rebellion and wickedness to end and the kingdom age to begin. When's it going to happen, Lord? What are going to be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? We have to understand that question, guys, that the disciples asked Jesus was a Jewish question asked by Jewish men who were looking for a Jewish Messiah to come and establish the Jewish kingdom. Therefore, the events Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24 are directed at Jews who will be living during a period of time the New Testament calls the tribulation period, but the Old Testament refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble. We see this clearly from the context. Again, in Matthew 24, verse 16, Jesus talks about Judea. Judea. In verse 20, he talks about the Sabbath. Pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath. What do we care if the Antichrist is revealed or sets up his image in the Holy of Holies on the Sabbath. In Israel, you can't get a bus, a taxi, an airplane out of town on the Sabbath day. And of course, in verse 15, he talks about the prophecies of Daniel concerning the Jewish people. This is Jewish territory, guys, but the problem is that most Christians have conditioned themselves to think of the Old Testament as relating to Israel and the New Testament as relating to the church. And so they automatically assume when they read the New Testament, that it's speaking to Christians living in the church age. Most of it is. Some of it's not. And therefore, when they read Matthew chapter 24, they see the church in chapter 24. And then verses 40 to 42 is a reference to the rapture of the church. But again, the disciples weren't thinking about the rapture of the church. They didn't even know what the rapture was. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 12, the rapture was kept for the most part a mystery until the church was born. And then God revealed it to Paul, who gave it to the church in 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, Matthew 24, guys, is Jewish territory, where the Lord Jesus is discussing events that will take place on the earth during the last seven-year period known as the tribulation period. And as we've already pointed out numerous times, uh, I believe the Bible clearly teaches the church is going to be raptured off the earth before the tribulation period begins, before the Antichrist is revealed, because He's the one who starts it. So then you're sitting there thinking, okay, then what is Jesus talking about in verses 40 to 41 when he said two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women 
They'll be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. If that's not talking about the rapture, good heavens, what is it talking about? Listen, the key lies in understanding what happened in the days of Noah at the time of the flood. The Lord gives us a hint in verse 39 when he said, and let me paraphrase, and the unbelievers did not know judgment was coming until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The verb translated took in verse 39 and take in verse 40 and 41, I believe, means take away in judgment. Take away in judgment. You see, at the time of the rapture, who is taken off the earth and who is left on the earth? When the rapture happens, the church or the people of God are taken off the earth. Unbelievers are left on the earth to be judged. Revelation 6 to 19, right? In the days of Noah, what happened? Who was taken? Who was left? The unrighteous were taken. They were swept away in judgment. They were removed from the earth. Who was left? The righteous, Noah and his family, which God allowed to stay on the earth because he was going to use them to begin a new world order, a new world. And Jesus said that's how it's going to be when he returns. Just like it was in the days of Noah, he said, the unbelievers are going to be taken away in judgment and the righteous will be left on earth to begin a new world, the kingdom age. This interpretation is reinforced by the parable he gives right after this. A parable is a, a story that illustrates a truth. Now, if we're thinking, well, I, I'm not sure if that's really the correct interpretation. I understand that. He gives a parable to illustrate what he's just said. The parable says exactly the same thing we've just talked about. Let's read verses 45 to 51. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. In other words, blessed is the servant who, when Jesus returns the second time, finds them serving the Lord faithfully. Verse 47, Assuredly I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if the, that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will, uh, will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour that he is not aware of. Now, the master comes and catches this wicked, unbelieving servant by surprise. Verse 31, excuse me, verse 51, And will cut him in two, and appoint him as portion with who? The hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is going on here? When Jesus Christ comes back at his second coming, you can read Revelation 19. He is going to wipe out, just like in Noah's day, the flood wiped out, swept away the unrighteous from the earth. When Jesus comes back at his second coming, he is going to wipe out the unbelievers. And send them to Hades, that place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, where they will remain for a thousand years until the great white throne judgment, and they are resurrected to stand before the Lord, and they are sentenced to eternity in hell or the lake of fire. So you, you see what I'm saying here. It sounds like the rapture, doesn't it? But you see how important context is? Context is everything, guys. And the reason Christians get into trouble with the way they interpret Scripture is they just jerk things out of context and, oh, it must mean this. 
They make a whole doctrine out of it, and they got this whole deal worked out, and it's not even consistent with what the context is. I understand why Christians, when they read this, they think of the rapture. But again, what happens at the time of the rapture? The righteous are taken off the earth. Unbelievers are left to go through the tribulation period. What happened in Noah's day? The unrighteous were taken off the earth. And Noah and his family, the righteous, were left to, to uh, be used by God to build a new world. And that's what it's going to be when Jesus returns. He is going to wipe out, take away the unbelievers from the earth. And the righteous believers will be left to enter the kingdom to begin a new world order with the Lord. So Jesus uses the ripening fig tree in the days of Noah to illustrate his coming. I'll give you the last one here. He also talks about a thief in the night. Verse 43, he says, But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Now you read that, and what do you think of automatically? The master of the house has Jesus. The thief can't be Jesus because ugh, Jesus is not a thief. That's bad, right? Thief is bad. Well, again, look at the context. Verse, verse 44, Therefore, also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, like a thief. See? Jesus is likening himself here to a thief. Not in the sense of character, of course. But in the sense that a thief only comes at a time, listen, when no one is aware that he is coming. If someone knows this house is going to be broken into, he will be ready, even if he doesn't know the exact time. The Son of Man will come at a time least expected by the people of the world, and his judgment is going to catch them by surprise. Let me read to you uh, just a small uh, section from an article that appeared in uh, National Geographic, May, 18, uh, May uh, 1984, written by Michael Bogart. I thought this was interesting, and it correlates with what we're talking about. It says, and I quote, The May 1984 National Geographic shows through color photos and drawings, the swift and terrible destruction that wiped out the Roman cities of Pompeii and Herculeum in AD 79. The explosion of Mount Vesuvius was so sudden, the residents were killed while in their routine. Men and women were at the market. The rich were in their luxurious baths, slaves at toil. They died amid volcanic ash and superheated gases. Even family pets suffered the same quick and final fate. It takes little imagination to picture the panic of that terrible day. The saddest part is that these people did not have to die. Scientists confirmed what ancient Roman records record. Weeks of rumblings and shakings preceded the actual explosion. Even an ominous plume of smoke was clearly visible from the mountain days before its eruption. If only they had been able to read and respond to Vesuvius's warnings. There are similar rumblings in our world. Warfare, earthquakes, the nuclear threat, economic woes, breakdown of the family and moral standards. While not exactly new, these things do point to a coming day of judgment as recorded in Matthew 24. People need not be caught unprepared. God warns and provides an escape to those who will heed the rumblings, end quote. Of course, the warnings come from his word. 
the escape that's provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet people don't listen. They don't heed the warnings. You know why? Because they don't believe a God of love would ever judge anyone. If they even believe in God at all. But if they do, I guarantee you, most people, will, if you told them judgment's coming, ah, that's crazy. God's a God of love. He will never judge the world. Well, God is a God of love who provided a way by which we would not have to be judged. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not have to perish in hell but have everlasting life. So a God of love has provided a way by which we might be saved. He can't force us to be saved. He won't do that. His love provided a way. Well, you must take that way. You must believe in Jesus Christ. And when you do, the Bible says you are placed in Christ, you are hidden in Christ, and as such, the judgment of God is going to pass over your life, even as the blood was applied to the doorposts and lentil of the houses in Egypt, the Jewish homes, which caused the judgment of God to pass over those houses. Same is true. You apply the blood of Christ to your heart, and the judgment of God passes over you. You are delivered. You are protected from the judgment that is coming. Now, as we bring this to a close, how does this relate to us who are believers, those of us who have put our faith in Christ? Well, the New Testament often compares to the second coming of Jesus Christ as a thief in the night. But listen, never to believers, only unbelievers. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 1, Paul said, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The term day of the Lord means God's judgment. For when they say, talking about unbelievers, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Interesting language. Paul is picking up the very language Jesus used in Matthew 24. Verse 4, but you, brethren, different group he's addressing now, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons and daughters of light and of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. In other words, Jesus only comes as a thief in the night. Listen, to those who are of the night and darkness, unbelievers, that day, the tribulation period, won't catch believers off guard. Why? Because we are children of light and of the day. Why are we children of light and the day? Because the Son of God lives in our hearts. And we know what He's told us to look for. We know the signs of His second coming. We know that the tribulation period precedes the second coming of Christ. So if we see the signs of His second coming all around us, we know the tribulation is getting that much closer. Which means the rapture is going to happen that much sooner because most of us believe the rapture takes place before the judgment of God is poured out. So we are watching for his return. We are not going to be taken off guard. We are not going to be caught by surprise. We're looking for the rapture based on the signs of his second coming, which are everywhere. And um, he will take us off the earth of the rapture before the night of God's judgment falls on this Christ-rejecting world. Now listen to Paul's admonition here to believers. Verse 6. Therefore, he says, let us not sleep, talking again to believers, as others do. But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those 
who get drunk are drunk at night. The implication is that just because we are believers in Jesus Christ doesn't mean we can't fall asleep in the light. Many have. What does that mean? It means they're not looking for the Lord's return. They're not looking for the signs. A lot of churches are not teaching prophecy anymore. Prophecy is uncomfortable to people. People don't want to hear that. Uh, we don't want to scare people away from our church. We want them to feel, you know, when they come kind of warm and fuzzy. We want to make them, you know, walk out of here with a, a bounce. We want to tell people what they want to hear. Well, I want to tell people what they need to hear. Sometimes, you know, I don't want to hear what I need to hear, but I need to hear it. Hopefully when you come to church and you understand that we love you enough to tell you the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, whether you like it or not. I try to, I don't want to get in your face and yell and scream and, you know, but I want to tell you the truth. And the thing about it is a lot of churches are not teaching prophecy anymore. They're not teaching coming judgment. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The Christians can fall asleep in the light where they're no longer watching, no longer being vigilant. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, but Paul actually goes on to say many have fallen asleep in the light as Christians and are no longer being vigilant in looking for Jesus' return. He tries to wake them up in Romans 13 by saying, and do this knowing the time that it is now high time to awake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. That was 2,000 years ago. If it was high time back then, it was higher time today to awake out of sleep, right? The night is far spent. The day is at hand. The night of man's rebellion is almost over. The day of Christ's return in the glorious kingdom age is upon us. Therefore, let us as believers cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Stop messing with the world, Christians. Stop getting entangled with the things of this life. Jesus is coming back. What are we getting entangled with the world for? Somebody asked me after first service, are you saying that we can't continue on in our lives? We can't pursue our careers? Jesus said, occupy till I come. Yes, go on with your life. Pursue a career. Finish school. If that's what God's leading you to do. But just don't let those things become the focus. Because Jesus is coming back, and we want to be ready. We want to be serving when he comes, not entangled with all these other things that have taken us away from him. But Paul said, it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Let me end with this. How does a child of God fall asleep in the light? And I've talked about these before, so I'm just going to fire them out. First of all, you can only fall asleep when your eyes are closed. Therefore, watch. The Word of God commands us to be watching for the Lord's return. And as I said last week, that's different from waiting for the Lord's return. I think most Christians are waiting. All Christians should be, but I think most Christians are waiting for the Lord's return. They're not watching for the Lord's return. And so they've gotten busy and they're doing other things. And when he comes, he's going to catch them by surprise. But if you're by the window watching for somebody's coming, when they come, they won't catch you off guard. We have to be watching, and we watch by knowing the signs to look for that point to what's coming. So you can only fall asleep when your eyes are closed. Watch. Secondly, you can only fall asleep when you're comfortable. Work. Work. I'm, I'm really discouraged by how many Christians have retired, you know, Kind of like David when he retired. He was tired of fighting the battles of the Lord. 
And in the spring of the year, when, when kings go out to battle, he'd just stay back in his new palace and send Joab to fight the battles of God. Of course, that left David with a lot of idle time. As the old saying goes, idleness is the devil's workshop. And he gets in trouble with a woman who was bathing on top of her housetop and so on. You know the story of David and Bathsheba. David would never have fallen to sin if he had been where he was supposed to be, serving God, fighting the battles of the Lord. Look, this is not a time to retire. This is a time, yeah, but I'm, you know, I've served the Lord for many years. Let the younger guys and gals serve God. Yeah, younger guys and gals, get with it. Let's, let's all serve God. Older saints, you're retired. You have plenty of time to serve God now, all right? This is the time. You know, forget the RV. Forget, you know, uh, you're riding around the country looking at mountains and things. Hey, that's well and fine. You want to do a little of that? No problem. But let's get, this is the time to serve God. God's given you. I know a pastor who turned his church over to one of his elders, and all he does now is focus on folks 50 and up. He said, this is the greatest untapped resource in the church. These folks have finished their careers. they got plenty of time now. They're in relative good health. What are we, we're sending them out to play golf and retire. These are the greatest resources the church has got today. Let's focus on our older saints and encourage them. Let's keep going. This is not a time to retire. So you can only fall asleep when your eyes are closed. Watch. You can only fall asleep when you're comfortable, therefore work. Number three, you can only fall asleep lying or sitting down, therefore walk. Walk. Ephesians 5.8, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of light. Of course, we say walk, your walk, what is that synonymous with? It's really just a, a, a way of saying my relationship with Jesus. You say, well, my walk has been really great lately. What do you mean? My relationship with Jesus has been really great lately. Why do we call it a walk? Because it's always to be done moving forward, but moving, okay? Growing is the idea. It's our responsibility to be constantly moving forward. That's our responsibility. How do we do that? Well, you be faithful in coming to church and hanging out with Christians who will challenge you and keep you accountable by staying in prayer with contact with the Lord, reading the Word, studying the Word. I mean, God bless you guys for coming out to study the Word. On Wednesday nights, we study the Word too, a little more in depth even. And um, that's where we need to be. We need to be in church studying the Word. And that's our responsibility. And if If we are faithful to doing these things and to maintain our walk, the Lord will bless us with a strong relationship with him, uh, we'll be uh, abiding in him, we'll be moving forward, and it's going to keep us as his people from falling asleep in the light. So guys, all I can say is our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Although there are some in this room who have not made a commitment to Jesus Christ yet, can I encourage you to come up afterwards so we can pray with you to receive Christ? There are people that, like the young guy I told you about earlier, he's dying. And if the Lord doesn't heal him, he's only got a month left to live. And his heart right now is very hard. I, I don't get it. I don't understand that. You're facing eternity. The Lord is lifting, is extending his arms. Come to me. Come to me. I'll receive you doesn't matter how you've lived. If you repent, come to, I'll receive you as my son or daughter. What do they do? They slap the Lord's hands away. 
It's amazing to me. Time is short. Whether you're a cancer patient with only a month left to live, or you're somebody that's healthy as a horse, Jesus could come back in a month. He could come back right now. We all might only have a month left to go on this earth. Who knows? This is not a time to be entangled with the world. It's a time to be watching and working and walking with our Savior. May God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us signs to look for that that are announcing your coming, which is near. And Lord, give us grace that we not ignore those warning signs, but Lord, that we look at them and say, the Lord has told us these things would happen before his return. They are happening. The Lord's return is getting very near. How can I live more devoted to my Lord? How can I run my race in such a way that when this race is done, I run right into Jesus' arms and he says to me, well done, good and faithful servants. Lord, give us grace that we, we do that. And wake your people up, Lord, who have fallen asleep in the light. Those who used to look for your return but have grown weary, worldly, and they are now basically not watching at all. Wake them up, Lord. And Father, fill us with your spirit afresh and send us out into this this lost and dying world to be a light. And whether they mock us or ridicule us, it doesn't matter. Give us such love for the people of this world that no matter what they say or do to us, all we want to give to them is your truth, your gospel, to tell them that this world is about ready to end the way we know it. But a new glorious kingdom is about to begin. If they want to be a part of it, come to Jesus right now. So, Lord, we ask that you would touch hearts, our families, first of all, that don't know you. Save them, Lord. And give us grace to be lights in the darkness. But we just love you, Lord, and thank you. We praise you for your great grace and love for us. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.